Welcome to another episode of the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we are transitioning to the Mexican period of California history, uh, and we're starting it with um, an, actually an American that became a Mexican citizen. Um, like we said in the previous episode, there's not a lot written about uh, the Mexican period, in part because um, a lot of the priests left, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but it's uh, kind of a period with uh, some uh, a lot less writing. So we're going to come at this and approach this topic in some unconventional ways uh, by looking uh, primarily at people. So uh, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We left the time of Spain behind us. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode with Dr. Basich. Um, I hope it was a helpful punctuation mark that leaves you with a strong sense of Spain's legacy in our state. Whether we're referring to the name of our cities or some coastal topography, we are constantly resurrecting our Spanish legacy. Um, it's true when we say Los Angeles, it's true when we say Santa Barbara, it's true when we say San Francisco. Um, but it is time to move on. We need to keep moving forward. For me, this podcast has all been directed to uh, the period of the United States. Not that the period of the United States is any more important than previous periods, but as an American historian, uh, that is my area, my interest, and ultimately where we have the most documented evidence. Uh, but before we get there, we need to spend some time in the Mexican period. Like Dr. Basich said last week, the Mexican period has considerably less writing associated with it. We have less to go off. Furthermore, the government in this period was in a constant state of change. There were 40 changes, I say 40, and I repeat 40, 40 changes of government within the period of 1821 to 1846, a period of 25 years. Um, moreover, the area of present-day California was still very much a frontier. Frontiers, like urban centers, uh, unlike urban centers, excuse me, have less of an intellectual class uh, who would be the ones to write things down. Moreover, since this period saw the secularization of the mission system, we uh, lost a lot of those priests who would have been the ones to document things happening. Now, as a quick sidebar, whatever you think about religion and priests and the religious class, uh, those people have often been the ones to document things. There's this book that I read a while ago, which certainly is rife with errors and flaws and overstatements, but makes an interesting and indisputable point. Uh, during the Dark Ages of Europe, the Irish monks who were created by the evangelization of St. Patrick, man, I'm having a tough time speaking today, were the ones who would return to Europe with their books to retain a lot of intellectual materials uh, from the classical period. The Irish, however, were not the ones, only ones that did this. Muslim scholars also translated and retained many of these classical documents. In Europe, in the Dark Ages, uh, priests were often the only ones that could read and write. What I'm not saying here is that there's something inherently superior about religion because of this connection. Often priests use their ability to read their particular scriptures as a tool of power over the parish and congregation. But it is to say that the absence of priests often means that the amount of writing about a period will decrease. That's it. You know, I've had a few people mention me that I talk a lot about religion on these podcasts, and that's certainly accurate. In part, that is my background. I have a graduate degree in religion, theology specifically. Um, but more broadly, I talk about it because it is an underutilized lens to which to view history. The theological lens is the undercurrent in how people viewed the world for most of time. To pretend it's not there, to take a materialist lens to history, 
Um, not to say that God is moving, but that people who are doing things are often doing things for religious reasons. To not do that, I think, is intellectually lazy. But that's a digression we don't need to follow for today. Maybe let's get to our topic for the day. I decided to follow the biography of an individual for today. Instead of trying to make sense, at least in this episode, um, of the Mexican period of California history, I figured we'd start out with a story about a person. Today we're gonna look at the life of Abel Stearns. Stearns is an American immigrant to Los Angeles and is one of the most important original citizens of the area, at least that is an American. He lived through a lot and he can give us a picture of things as they were in California during this period. Now, Stearns was born in Massachusetts in 1798. Um, another Massachusetton, Massachusetts, I don't know how to say, another person from Massachusetts was actually president uh, when he was born, John Adams. Uh, Stearns was born in Lunenburg, Massachusetts. Lunenburg sits on the northern edge of Worcester County in Massachusetts. Now, this town was kind of on the periphery, on the frontier, like the place he would end up going to, and they often experienced raids from Native Americans, uh, but for the most part, this was a sleepy farming community. Even to this day, uh, the small town of Lunenburg boasts a population of just over 10,000. Now, Stern's father was a farmer, um, and I'm sure his mother also helped on the farm, but tragically, he lost both of his parents at, by the age of 12. His father died in 1810, uh, or excuse me, his mother died in 1810, and his father died a year after. Uh, without a family to support him, he went to work on the coast, the East Coast, to make a living on the sea. Now, I'm a middle school teacher, and I can't even fathom what it would be like for some of my students to lose their whole family, uh, to go out on the ocean to start a career all at the age of 12. It's unfathomable. Now, he began as a sailor, which is not something we should skip over lightly. Um, even on a merchant ship, not a military ship, that was quite an endeavor. First of all, the period that Stearns began working as a sailor was the time of the War of 1812. The Naval War in 1812 was extensive. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, our friend from the episode on the Santa Barbara mission, um, wrote his most famous book about the Naval War of 1812. But even in peacetime, the life of a sailor in the 19th century was challenging. Their days were broken up into watches, uh, not like a wristwatch, but like a time that you have to be on deck and awake. Each crew member's day was broken up into four-hour chunks that they were on watch while the rest of the crew rested. Now, I don't exactly understand the system, but it must be there for a reason. The jobs that were required of a sailor were physically strenuous. A lot of work required pulling things, including masts, cargoes, anchors, etc. And even when they weren't sailing, the sailors would have been required to maintain the ship. Even the best ships in the 19th century took on water, which had to be pumped out manually. And the hull needed recocking once a year, and the mass had to be oiled, and it goes on and on, and et cetera, et cetera. So it was a challenging job for a 12-year-old to jump into. Now, eventually, Stern worked his way up to be a super agent or a trader. He was moving from a difficult manual labor job to working with people and selling goods, which would uh, presage his future. This probably says something about his personality and his work ethic. 
Now, one area they traded in was Mexico, specifically uh, Mexico City. Um, after the Mexican War of Independence, the United States was quick to establish diplomatic relations with Mexico so they could begin a trading relationship. In the future episode, we're going to talk about the Treaty of Limits um, and talk about how the United States actually tried to purchase uh, parts of Mexico that would eventually be acquired in the uh, Mexican-American War. Um, but that's for another day. For now, uh, Stearns traded enough uh, with Mexico that he decided to make his residence permanent. He first settled in Mexico City and became a naturalized citizen before uh, moving to California a few years after that. Now, Stearns settled in the Los Angeles area, and his first project was to build a warehouse and a flour mill on Spring Street, which I believe still exists today. If you remember from earlier episodes about the mission system, the mission at the Presidio and the Monterey were effectively the capital of the region. But after the Mexican period of independence and the secularization, power and population in some ways shifted from north to south. There are some complicated matters related to the government of Mexico, but the broad strokes are that the area was given scant attention by the Mexican government, which was dealing with bigger issues down south. Now, interestingly, the Stearns flour mill, which he built, which was one of his first projects in the 1830s, um, is, was in the news recently this year um, because uh, a family and some developers are updating the site where the mill, the mill was, um, and that's located in present-day uh, Chinatown, near the Chinatown uh, subway station. So um, it very much still exists to this day. In addition to this mill, um, Stearns also built a warehouse to receive shipments um, and sell goods uh, that were arriving from merchants. Now, Stearns really hit it big in the early 1840s when he sent the first major find of gold in California to the United States Mint in Philadelphia. There is some, I will admit it, a significant historical debate about who, when, and where discovered the first bit of gold. But for our purposes in this podcast, what we do know is that um, Stearns was getting rich already, but this made him quite rich. Um, the same year of the gold discovery, Stearns purchased a large, and when I say large, I mean really large, rancho in Southern California. Uh, the grant from the Mexican government uh, was for 28,000 acres. The next 10 years after purchasing the land were eventful and pretty exciting. It only gets better. Um, now, in terms of the war, it appears that Stearns took a neutral stance in the war with Mexico, perhaps for good reason. Um, but underneath that neutrality, there was an attitude of Stearns wanting to be out of government rule, like, you know, like all businesses, right? Um, the Mexican government, at least in California, was horribly managed. Um, there were hosts of problems, some related to indigenous people, some related to inefficiencies. Um, so since arriving in California, though, Stearns did participate in local government affairs. He was actually granted a law license by the Mexican government. He regularly tallied votes in local elections and even sat on the city council. Uh, but when it came to larger issues, separate from local politics he was involved in, Stearns was, for the most part, wanted to stay neutral. During the war, Stearns was conferred with to assess the amount of resistance to a U.S. invasion of the area. Uh, Stearns, however, did not want to be involved and chose to not help, which led to uh, the military campaign being led by uh, Fremont, who we will come to later. After the war was over, Stearns became uh, the representative um, of California to the military government. 
But for the most part, Stearns was just a frontier businessman who wanted to be left alone to conduct his business. He did participate in the creation of the Constitution of California, which, just so we're all clear, um, given all the uh, particularities and, frankly, insanities of some things in the California Constitution, we're going to spend a lot of time there in future episodes of how it was created, why it was created, and its legacy. But not now. Um, this time period in which the Constitution was created also coincided with the gold rush. The gold rush uh, further lined the pockets of Stearns as well as other businessmen in California, um, so much that um, he became even more rich. Um, but like all good things, uh, had to come to an end. Um, and as the gold rush ended, many of the ranchers uh, got into steep, steep debt. Um, now, uh, the debt was in part because uh, they overpurchased goods, uh, thinking that the gold rush would have lasted longer. Um, now, Stearns, uh, a savvy businessman, uh, used uh, the recession uh, following the gold rush to his advantage. Since Stearns was both a merchant and a rancher, so um, many of the people that went broke were ranchers that bought too much cattle, uh, Stearns had access to a lot of hard cash, um, meaning he actually had cash on reserves. It wasn't just in assets. Um, he was able to be insulated from parts of the recession, but he also could lend money uh, to other ranchers uh, who were having a hard time. Um, now, when the ranchers couldn't pay Stearns back, he would sue them and exact the money from them uh, based on their assets, which typically were livestock and land. This began the period of Stearns consolidating large swaths of land in Southern California. Some of the land was bought through the use, or some of the land was bought through the use of force. Uh, some was purchased at auction, and some was purchased traditionally. Now, when all things were said and done, uh, Stearns owned somewhere in the ballpark of 200,000 acres of land in the area of Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties, the largest land empire in California. However, things got tough for Stearns later. Following a drought in the 1860s, uh, Stern lost a ton of money after much of his livestock died. Like many of the people that he sued before, he was also forced to start borrowing money. Um, eventually, in desperate straits, Stearns got support from a friend to sell his land. In 1868, he deeded over uh, much of his land to a trust uh, that began to sell it off. Uh, this move made Stearns rich again. Uh, but he still wanted to pretend like the land was his. He would regularly graze cattle and sheep on it, which the controllers of the trust bitterly told him to stop doing. Uh, fortunately, this conflict, I guess you could say fortunately, uh, was resolved in 1871 when Stearns passed away. Um, now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Stearns uh, was married to one of the most beautiful and important uh, Californian women of this period, uh, but we're going to save that for the next episode because in many ways uh, she deserves as big if not bigger of an episode than mr stearns so um, i hope you uh, enjoyed this introduction to uh, the mexican period of california and some of the major events uh, we're going to be jumping around uh, within this period and talking about different topics uh, but next week we will uh, meet stearns uh, wife um, and who would go on to live for uh, nearly uh, 50 years beyond his death and accomplish a lot of things. So um, stay tuned. <laughs>